Good morning, Fifth Church. Uh, the Lord be with you. Uh, when John asked me to take the message this week, I immediately thought of this passage in Philippians chapter 4, where Paul talks about contentment. The last time I preached, actually, was almost exactly three months ago on March 15, and I, it was the first Sunday that churches were closed down. I was preaching at a local church in an empty room into a, a camera, uh, and I thought that it was appropriate to talk about anxiety and worry in the uncertainty of what we were all uh, then just beginning. So I, I used a passage from the Sermon on the Mount and uh, where Jesus talks about uh, don't be anxious and take no thought for the morrow and uh, uh, preach that. But today I think we're in something of a different place and perhaps the issue confronting most of us at least is uh, boredom and weariness and restlessness and un unhappiness, dissatisfaction with both what's going on uh, around us, outside us, and maybe in our own homes. So I thought of this verse from, uh, first from Philippians chapter 4, where Paul talks about what he calls the secret, the secret of contentment. Um, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things in, in him, in Christ, who strengthens me. So Paul uh, is writing to the Philippians, one of his favorite congregations, people whom he loved, with whom he had a very warm relationship. And in a sense, this little book of Philippians could be thought of as an extended thank you note. Uh, and that's what Paul is specifically addressing here in the passage we heard from Philippians 4. Uh, he's in Rome, and his situation actually is described in the closing verses of the book of Acts, where Luke writes that Paul lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The Romans didn't have a penal system. They didn't have uh, a bunch of jails and prisons where they would send convicted criminals uh, to be punished. There was a dungeon in the city of Rome where uh, people who were, had been condemned to death and were awaiting execution could be held briefly. But normally the penalty for uh, other than capital crimes in the Roman Empire was to be fined or exiled. And Paul, of course, hasn't been convicted of anything yet. He simply appealed his case to the emperor, to Caesar. So he's been sent in custody to the city of Rome, and while there, he's still being guarded, being watched so that he doesn't skip town, but he's on his own in a sense. He's uh, had to find a rented apartment of some kind in which to live. So he's both in custody and living on charity. 
And the charity that has sustained him, that pays the rent and buys his food, has come primarily from the Philippians. They sent a messenger, a person named Epaphroditus, who's mentioned in chapter 2, and he's brought help to Paul, and now Paul is sending him back with this, this little thank you note that we know as the letter to the Philippians. And it exudes joy and gratitude uh, and thanksgiving. Paul wants them to know how grateful he is. So he writes, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you've revived your concern for me. Uh, and in fact, he then later references the earlier time in which they helped him when, during his second missionary journey when he went from Philippi to Thessalonica and they, uh, on that occasion, also supported him financially. But then he comes to this specific point that he wants to make. He doesn't want them to misunderstand. He has a very delicate idea that he wants to convey. His gratitude, which is sincere and heartfelt, but also the sense that he's not in want, he's not in need, he's not somehow angling for more. Um, he wants them to know that he has everything he needs in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so these words, I've learned, I've learned to be content. I can enjoy the highs and I can endure the lows. I have all things in Christ who strengthens me. I want to talk a little bit about contentment. And I'd like to begin by saying what it isn't. In the first place, contentment is not simply being satisfied with all our stuff, being comfortable with all that we possess. Because most of us do possess quite a lot, especially compared to the rest of the world. We have many things. Uh, we have few worries, relatively speaking. And it's easy to confuse that sort of comfort or happiness with true contentment. Uh, I think of the parable of Jesus, uh, the parable we call the story of the rich fool. You maybe remember him, the man whose crops had increased. And he said, well, what shall I do? I know, I'll build bigger barns, and I'll store up all this excess, and I'll say to myself, soul, take it easy, eat and drink. And God said to him that very night, your life's required, you're a fool. This isn't going to last. See, there's, there's a couple problems with finding our contentment in our possessions. One is, for so many people, enough is never enough. The barns are never big enough. Think of King Ahab in the Old Testament. Remember his story? He's sitting in his palace. He's king of the land. He has everything you could imagine. And then he looks out and he sees the vineyard of his neighbor Naboth. And he becomes discontent and restless and irritated because he can't have it. There's a famous story about John D. Rockefeller, who at the time was the richest man in the world. Somebody asked him, asked him, 
how much is enough? And he said, just a little more. Furthermore, it doesn't last. You may be content with what you have now, but what if you lose it? Look around. It can happen. Here's another thing that isn't true contentment. Stoicism, stoic resignation, a kind of stealing yourself so that you don't really care. The Stoics were a party, of course, in the time of the New Testament. And they had a couple of terms that they used uh, to describe the attitude they wished to develop. One was out our case, which means basically self-sufficiency, having everything you need just within yourself. And the other was apatheia. Maybe you hear the word apathy in that. It means literally not feeling. So you don't allow yourself uh, any empathy or any sympathy because that would upset your inner equilibrium. You kind of create a shell around yourself. Stoicism was a popular philosophy in the ancient world, but it often didn't work uh, because people found, no matter how hard they tried, something would happen to crack the shell. As Shakespeare said, uh, there never was yet a philosopher who could endure the toothache patiently. So when pain comes or when loss comes, you find your, your stoic uh, resolve, your facade is broken, it's cracked. A third thing, true contentment does not mean having contempt for the good things of the world that you don't have. It's easy to play that game, isn't, isn't it? It's, it's like the guy who posts unflattering pictures and disparaging remarks about the girl who turned him down. Or the child who says, oh, I didn't want it anyway, when something is withheld. But to be content, we don't have to pretend that the good things we don't have aren't good or that we don't really want them. There's a wonderful quote I came across years ago from George MacDonald. I don't know if you know that name, but George MacDonald was um, <clears throat> a writer and Christian of the late 19th century, early 20th century, who one of his greatest fans was C.S. Lewis. Uh, so that says a lot. But in one of his books, he wrote this. By the way, MacDonald was a minister who lost his position due to some heretical views uh, and ended up living a very precarious life uh, as a writer and trying to support his large family, sometimes not so successfully. And he wrote this, let me, if I may, be ever welcomed to my room in winter by a glowing hearth, in summer by a vase of flowers. If I may not, let me think how nice they would be and bury myself in my work. I do not, <clears throat> pardon me, I do not think that the road to contentment lies in despising what we have not got. Let us acknowledge all good, all delight that the world holds and be content without it. Finally, 
as I run through the negatives before the positive, contentment does not mean satisfaction with the way things are, either in the world or in ourselves, in the sense of sort of, I don't care, or passivity in the face of real sin, real evil. We can be upset, even outraged, at the things that are going on around us, at the sins of our society, racism, uh, premierly now, as it's brought to attention, at the sins in our own hearts and in our own lives, with which we do not make peace, but are continually at war. Contentment doesn't mean adopting a who cares attitude, a sort of a, hey man, whatever. Contentment uh, is not inconsistent with the fight against injustice and our own personal complicity, perhaps. I think in this season, I, I want to be like the disciples in the upper room <laughs> and ask, Lord, is it I? Are you speaking to me? Do you mean me when you talk about the things that are being raised now? So what is it then, if it's not any of these other things? Contentment, I think, as Paul spells it out here, is being satisfied with who and where we are in life, with our circumstances, because our ultimate satisfaction is found in Jesus Christ. That's the secret, you see. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And here the, the preposition is important. Uh, however your English version may translate it, translate it, in the original that verse is the word in. I can do all things in Christ who gives me strength. Now notice what he's not saying here. Paul's not saying that because I'm a Christian I, I have some superhuman powers. I'll, I learned this lesson early on, very early on as a pastor in my first church. I went to visit an elderly member of the congregation in a nursing home and I, I came into a room and sat down and we chatted uh, for a while and uh, I was gonna leave, but first I, I asked her, would you like me to read scripture and pray with you? She said, yes. And so for some reason I turned to Philippians chapter four and I read this verse. Uh, I know how to be uh, brought low and how to abound. Uh, I've learned in any and all circumstances to be content. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I looked up and smiled and she looked up and frowned and said to me, then why am I so weak? <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, it's a reminder that we don't just throw verses out casually. But what Paul is really saying there is, no, not that I can do anything and everything, not that I don't have weakness, not that I don't experience downtimes. But in Christ, I have what I most desire. 
And in having him, I find I have what I most need as well. Jesus' priceless treasure, that's an old German chorale. If he is that, if he is your ultimate treasure, then you can be content whatever else you may or may not have because you know him. He's the the treasure in the field for which we should sell everything in order to buy. He's the pearl of great price who's worth it all. It is in Christ that the secret's found, not by Christ or through Christ, in Christ. Union with Christ is ultimate satisfaction and true contentment. Let me close with just a couple practical points. Uh, One of them comes from St. Augustine. I, uh, during the past year, have been reading Augustine's Confessions with a young friend from Fifth. Uh, I see you, Adam. And um, it's been a great experience. Not always easy to understand uh, everything in the great saint's autobiography. But recently, I've I've been sort of moving on as we've been uh, shut down by the the whole pandemic. And I found something that Augustine wrote after the the supreme moment in the Confessions where he comes to Christ finally, he surrenders. Uh, It's a famous scene, by far the most famous scene. And a little bit after that, Augustine writes this about what happened to him after he finally uh, came fully and wholeheartedly uh, to commit himself to, to Christ. I submitted my neck to your easy yoke and my shoulders to your light burden. Suddenly it had become sweet to me to be without the sweets of folly. You turned them out and entered to take their place, pleasanter than any pleasure, Already my mind was free of the biting cares of place-seeking, of desire for gain, of wallowing in self-indulgence, of scratching the itch of lust. So there's one practical thing we can do in order to find our ultimate contentment in Christ, whether we have little or much. Stop scratching the itch, the itch of lust, and of course, We lust for a lot more things than physical pleasures like sex or money or food or or drink. So don't scratch the itch of envy. Don't scratch the itch of jealousy. Don't scratch the itch of anger. Uh, Stop looking around and instead focus on Christ. And here's the, the second practical point, I think when it comes to contentment. Contentment is closely related to happiness. It is a a form of happiness. And happiness uh, is a byproduct. When we set it as our goal and our aim, we find that it continually eludes us. But when we focus our aim on something else, we often find that we experience it along the way, sometimes without even noticing it. 
So as Jesus said, don't be anxious about so many things, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be yours as well. I love C.S. Lewis's riff on that idea. Aim at heaven and you get the earth thrown in. Aim at the earth and you get neither. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Pray with me. Lord Jesus Christ, you are our priceless treasure. We long to know you more deeply, to follow you more nearly. We pray, Lord, that you will help us to find in you that which we most need and most desire, and to be content to serve you, whatever our circumstances. And we pray it in your name. Amen.